This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we have a special treat for you today. A fan favorite of the show, Robert Friedland, and we have his keynote speech from AME's remote roundup from last week. They were kind enough to provide us with the audio. And so, yeah, a special treat. Robert Friedland always gets the most views whenever we have speech of his on the show. So we're really pleased and thankful to AME Roundup for helping us out there. And yeah, so that is coming up. It looked like they had a pretty good solid conference last week. It was all online. It was Remote Roundup, which I thought was actually a pretty good name. And they had Ross Beatty. And Ross Beatty has been talking about ESG almost before it was cool. Like I remember being at a Canadian Mining Symposium, I guess it would be almost two years ago now. And I mean, I guess that's fairly recently, but the whole thing or at least most of the speech was on climate change and how we need to do something. And it's not a typical mining executive speech. And I think there are probably people who are listening to this like, oh no, climate change, it's a joke. So, I mean, however you feel. I know geologists who don't believe in actually climate change being fully transparent. You know, when I was quote unquote converted, it wasn't because of uh, Twitter, it wasn't because of news articles. You know what did it? Like, I was always sort of like, not sure, uh, I'm not as certain as everybody else that we can figure this out. Part of my, you know, Greek philosophical upbringing, which makes you quite skeptical. I mean, that's one of the kind of biggest qualities of Plato is skepticism and being very skeptical of being able to, you know, try and know anything. And so what really sort of kind of nudged me over the line, and I don't say it with like 100% conviction, because I, I don't think we can know, but I mean, it looks pretty convincing. And I don't want to journey any further down this road because it's so fraught with political connotations and it's a very divisive issue for some people still. But for me, it changed when I was watching a lecture, a course on the Great Courses on astronomy and it was a 99-part lecture series. Maybe I've talked about this before. And one of the episodes was on Venus. And really, the professor pointed out that what we think happened, what the general consensus is that Venus used to be actually quite a hospitable planet. And that right now, the reason it's so inhospitable is because of its runaway greenhouse effect. They believe that basically... That carbon dioxide got out of control and that, if I remember this right, it creates this greenhouse effect where the more carbon dioxide circles the planet, the more the heat gets trapped in, and that this creates a feedback loop. And I've only taken one geography class, but I remember they're big on feedback loops, as they should be. It seems to be a quality of nature. Anyways, that's what sort of pushed me over the line because, again, like you don't know what to believe. I have a relative who's in, um, you know, a climate change scientist. So, 
Yeah. Anyway, an ever open mind is key. And I think, and politically, <laughs> not that I want to go down this path anymore, but I do have a fairly simple political view on this, which is even if we don't know for sure, uh, if it's half possible that this is true, then we should probably do something, right? And if it's 80% possible, well, then we should definitely do something because we can't afford to be wrong. We can't afford to be wrong. So anyway, I don't want to get too off track. I guess the reason why I'm talking about this is there is a lot of green economy stuff. Remote Roundup discusses Canada's role in the green economy. Ross Speedy, do the right thing. And there was more. And then I saw this amazing quote, and I think it was Ross Speedy actually. Yeah, here it is. And he's talking about ESG. Quote, at the time, nobody in the industry, including investors, cared about it. And he's talking about back in 1994. But fast forward to today, and it's a critical issue that comes up at every single meeting you have with investors and is often the number one topic. So we have gotten emails in the past like, can you dial back the ESG stuff? But really, the zeitgeist is still there. It hasn't relaxed, and if anything, it's become normalized. So we're going to have more. We're going to cover it, however you feel on these things, because I'm open to those people, because I know geologists who are skeptical of climate change. So it's really, I think we should be, you know, I think we should be inclusive, and that means inclusive to divergent viewpoints, right? So let's not go any further. So we have a really interesting show, and Robert Friedland What's great about his speech, to me, it was like a State of the Union address. You know, the American president, U.S. president, every year, it's for election years, will give a speech on the State of the Union. And I felt like Robert Friedland gave a State of the Mining Industry speech. And it was very interesting. And you're going to hear a lot of stuff you've heard before. But you're also going to hear some new stuff. And I think the thing that I was the biggest kind of set off the most neurons in my brain was the part where he said, we no longer drill to discover an ore body. We now drill to confirm an ore body. So saying, in other words, that geophysics has reached a point where they've kind of are pretty good at being able to tell what's underground. At least that was the implication of what he was saying. And that we no longer are just blindly making targets based on geological formations that we think might exist. Now it's more of a confirmation of what our computers are telling us is underneath the surface. I didn't know that. To me, that's a philosophical switch that changes. And maybe that will also help the junior mining industry because, frankly, I think that's how the common perception is, is that junior mining is sticking random holes in the ground, they put random in quotes there, and hoping for the best. And if you can start to say, hey, we kind of already think we know what's down there, and now we just want to do confirmation, it's a bit more of a value add. It makes it a little, little bit more attractive to the investor, and I guess it de-risks it, to, to use a popular mining term, it de-risks it. So, that could help 
attract money. And final thing on this, and then we'll get to the news, is Friedland was saying money is coming back into the sector. It's been a tough 10 years, but it's going to come back. And that was interesting. That was interesting. So (laughs) hope springs eternal for the junior mining industry, and maybe their dreams will be realized. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. And you can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And a quick note before we jump into the news stories, thank you to CIM Sudbury, who invited me to moderate last week. Uh, We had a pretty interesting discussion on low-grade nickel deposits, if you think that's hard to do. I thought it would be harder than it was. They did a great job. It was very informative. And uh, I think we learned a lot. I'll bring it up in future episodes because it really feeds right into this government relationship in promoting the mineral industry. And long story short, one of the interesting takeaways was they don't necessarily, these low-grade nickel deposit companies don't necessarily want uh, government handouts of the nature that were given to first cobalt. And that surprised me because I thought from an outsider perspective, that was just the greatest thing ever. We're promoting our mineral industry, but I think the the end of the story is not there. Let's see if they can raise the money for their projects because if they can't, then I'm kind of back at square one, like just take the money. I've never been a huge fan of government money for I'm a free market kind of guy, but if you're in a global economy where you have maybe China that is subsidizing their, say, rare earths industry, which totally disappeared from North America as a result, then maybe we need to think outside of the box and not just purely leave it up to the market because we're not playing a fair game in that case. Anyway, fantastic discussion. Thanks to everybody involved. And uh, CIM Sudbury, they're very easy to work with, and that is always appreciated. Turning to our news stories, Saul Gold, the CEO, Nick Mather, former Northern Miner Person of the Year, is retiring after shareholder pressure. And this came out right after last week's podcast. Saul Gold announced that Nick Mather would step down as CEO after 13 years at the helm of the company. His resignation comes after Mather was handed a strong rebuke at the company's annual meeting in mid-December when nearly half of the shareholders, 44.7%, voted against his reappointment to the board. So although I think he survived technically, politically, he did not survive. And this article seems to be pointing to that financing package of from Franco, Nevada, of $150 million and a $15 million bridge loan for its Alpala project, to find Newcrest, which had urged it to raise funds via equity. Yeah, like a, a project that looks that promising with people like Newcrest, and I think BHP is involved, if memory serves, with record low interest rates, they could practically pay you to take loans today. Um, why on earth are you doing an NSR for a mere $150 million? And what are you giving away for that $150 million? Like, so yeah. I can understand, and Cornerstone Capital Resources here said it wanted to replace Saul Gold's entire board of directors, and we have 
Cornerstone chairman Greg Chimandy, quote, as one of the largest shareholders of Solgold, it is obvious to Cornerstone that the current Solgold board is incapable of managing the affairs of Solgold for the benefit of all shareholders in a prudent and transparent manner. Additionally, it is our view that the proposed Franco-Nevada royalty financing will significantly destroy shareholder value for all Solgold shareholders. So... I see this streaming issue as becoming more and more controversial. Like I think five years ago, it was seen like, oh, almost a why not? And now I think it's becoming more of a like as a only as a last resort, should we do this? So Nick Mather moves on from Saul Gold. Continuing on, we have an M&A El Dorado is going to buy QMX Gold for $105 million dollars. The friendly acquisition will see El Dorado, which currently owns 68 million shares of QMX, or roughly 17% of the company, paying each QMX shareholder 7.5 cents in cash and 0.02 of an El Dorado share. It is a 40% premium on the closing price of QMX shares on January 20th. And we have a quick quote from George Burns who is El Dorado's president and CEO. The transaction is consistent with our strategy of pursuing growth at Lamac in Quebec, a high-quality jurisdiction. QMX's highly prospective land package is ideally located immediately adjacent to our current Lamac operation and associated exploration projects in the heart of the Val d'Or district. And so, yeah, and it sounds like they think there's a lot of opportunity in the unexplored areas. So... Interesting M&A in Quebec. Moving on, we have a few remote roundup stories, and I'm going to go through them quickly. A remote roundup discusses Canada's role in the green economy, and that featured Stephen Piercy, professor of economic geology at the Department of Earth Sciences at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And he's talking about Canada, what role it can play in the green economy. So touching a lot of the themes that we've seen before, I'm going to move on, and we have Ross Beatty's talk, and he's basically saying for mining companies to walk the talk on ESGs by Carl A. Williams. And another quote, we quoted him in our intro, another quote, these companies are doing ESG because they have to do it and because investors now demand it. But most importantly, they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Whether it's called ESG or, quote, social license, he continued, Quote, what they all mean is doing the right thing, and that's not rocket science. It's pretty basic. It means looking after your workforce by making sure they go home every day healthy. It means looking after your communities, the people who drive your business, which includes employees, the service providers, and contractors. It means working with them to build value for the long term. It means looking after the countries you operate in by working with the national governments and paying responsible amounts of taxes and royalties. So, yeah, Ross Beatty leading the charge of helping rebrand the mining industry as really a pillar of the community. And here it is, uh, his final quotes. In these circumstances, companies have to rise above the local standards in those countries and operate using one standard that is world-class. So show leadership and values. Continuing, there is only one way that exploration or mining companies should operate today, no matter where they operate, and that is to operate with the very highest standards of ESG and sustainability in mind. And then we have Remote Roundup looks at commodities and financial markets by Daniel Sekulik. And wrapping up the second day of AME Remote Roundup was a virtual session that brought together a group of industry experts 
on commodities and financial markets. So supply chains were an issue as well as ESG with a sharp focus on climate risk. And we also see the reappearance of scope three emissions. So Francis Sullivan, the deputy chair for business at nonprofit Responsible Steel and a senior advisor in global sustainability at HSBC Holdings said that more and more companies are now investing not only in scope one and scope two carbon emissions, but also scope three emissions. Quote, leading mining companies have already realized that the growth in the green and sustainable bond markets can help finance their sustainability plans. And Sullivan continued, over the last three years, the total assets under management following an ESG investment philosophy has over doubled to over $40 trillion, with a very sharp increase in the last 12 months. So this whole green bond thing, so basically what they're saying is, the takeaway for me is, the more harmonized you are with ESG principles, the more likely it is that you're going to get money. Green bonds. I've never heard that before, but very interesting. And finally, uh, we have an outlook for base metals. Haywood Securities is saying that the outlook for base metals remains strong. That is the chorus. We seem to be, again, in a bull market in commodities again, the likes of which we saw maybe 15 years ago, uh, which was a massive bull market. This is by Trish Saywell, Editor-in-Chief. Haywood Securities is raising its price forecast for copper this year from $3 to $3.50 per pound, from zinc from $1.10 to $1.25 per pound, and for nickel to $8 per pound from $6.75 per pound. Uh, Haywood's forecast for 2022 is $3.50 per pound copper, $1.20 per pound zinc, and $8.50 per pound nickel. So basically where we are right now, pretty close, as you'll see in metal prices. Quick quote from Haywood's Pierre Vaillancourt, quote, the economic recovery is building, demand for metals is increasing, and sentiment about base metals is positive. China ended 2020 in remarkably good shape and remains poised to expand further this year as the economy grew 6.5% in Q4 2020 rather than the 6.1% consensus forecast, and industrial production rose by 7.3% in December 2020, the highest since March 2019. So the great reflation as business starts to pick up, the demand for metals seems to be off the charts with China leading the charge. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 26th, gold is trading at $1,855.88 per ounce. That is $12 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading three cents higher at $25.37 per ounce. Platinum is trading at $1,090.24. That is $10 lower than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,335.28. That is $42 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper 
is trading at $3.57 per pound. That is five cents lower than last week's quote. Aluminum is a penny lower at 90 cents per pound. Lead is a penny higher at 91 cents per pound. And nickel is at $8.12 per pound. That is three cents lower than last week's quote. Tin is at $9.98 per pound. That is 23 cents higher than last week's quote. And cobalt is at $17.96. That is 73 cents higher than last week's quote. And zinc is down two cents at $1.20. So pretty steady price action here. Kind of not much to write home about. Almost in stasis, but industrial metals staying high. Precious metals basically keep the wind in their sail. And tin is a real standout at $9.98 per pound and cobalt as well. With that... Those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have someone who kind of needs no introduction, at least in the mining industry, Robert Friedland, who spoke from his home in Singapore. He did the keynote speech for the opening ceremonies of AME Remote Roundup. And for those who don't know, Robert Friedland is an American-Canadian billionaire financier in the mining industry. Since the early 1980s, he has specialized in securing funding for the exploration and development of mineral and energy resources and technology ventures. And with that, I hope you enjoy the speech, and I will see you on the other side. Good morning, and here's a shout out from Singapore to everybody at uh, this year's virtual Cordilleran Roundup. Uh, I go back to the old days when we used to do this at the uh, Bayshore Hotel, where Howard Hughes used to live. I used to I used to walk to the Cordilleran Roundup uh, from our Vancouver office. And, uh, we walked down to the Bayshore Hotel, and uh, that was 20, 30 years ago. Vancouver had already invented the SPAC, you know, and now they're all the rage on the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, we had everybody there in one room. If you dropped a neutron bomb there, you could have killed the whole mining industry. So this year I salute you from uh, Singapore. And I'm very delighted to uh, give my respects to everybody at the Cadillac and Roundup, uh, all the explorers that are doing the heavy lifting to find the things we really need to keep this planet spinning on its axis. Well, you know, I've been talking uh, for a number of years about the revenge of the miners, and the mining industry has been down for such a long time that most participants forgot what up looks like. So since everything by nature is cyclical, uh, we've had uh, most of the money in the world for the last 20 years has gone into um, broadband, internet, the cloud, telecommunications, and other clearly disruptive technologies. But of course, mining also benefits from all of those disruptive technologies. And now that the world has gone through this profound shock of COVID-19, and we're beginning to wonder, what is the world going to look like when governments address the recovery effort? People are waking up to the fact that certain elements in the periodic table are gonna be huge winners. And so uh, this begins the era of the revenge of the miners. There's a, there's a very good writer uh, from the uh, New Yorker magazine 
who has written a story about the period of the Spanish flu, when hundreds of millions of people died uh, from a virus that uh, actually started in Kansas at a U.S. military base. It was the American flu, 1918. And it went worldwide with the U.S. military. And in 1918, 1919, untold numbers of hundreds of millions of people died. When that virus finally burned out around 1920, we began the Roaring Twenties. Uh, shirts got uh, shorter. People started drinking hooch or alcohol and partying. They called it the Roaring Twenties. And the world just boomed for eight or nine years until the great crash of 1929. So one paradigm of what the world is going through with everybody locked in their basement or having conferences like this virtually uh, without the ability to travel freely, obviously bad for the cruise ship industry and airlines. But when the world does eventually recover, and it will recover from this particular virus, maybe the analogy is a little bit like the 1920s where we experience uh, governments very anxious to improve the lives of their people. Uh, a strident effort is made to reduce the Gini coefficient, the disparity between rich and poor. We see that in Europe and the United States, and it's been going on in China for generations. You can't have just a hundredth of one percent of humanity super rich and everybody else having nothing. And we all breathe the same air and drink the same water. So when the world focuses on infrastructure development, economic stimulation, a Green New Deal, it's apparent that you have to call up those Canadian miners, get their attention. And uh, you know, unfortunately, the average human being has no idea whatsoever of what it actually takes to go out into the dark, cold night, say in Canada, and crack the rocks and find something and then overcome the 10 billion problems to actually bring it into commercial production. So, it, you know, we're very, very early in what's called an upcycle. And we're, in, and we're sort of in the tenuous early days of putting our toes in the water. We won't really see this the way I think we're going to see it until 2023. 2024, 2025, when the world will really be focused on a 50 to 100 trillion dollar enterprise to green the world economy and to electrify the world economy. And that will have an unbelievably profound effect um, on the Cordilleran Roundup. And maybe we'll buy the old Bayshore and turn it into a party center you know, and it'll take, uh, it'll make, it'll make uh, Vancouver more like Calgary used to be when we used to burn oil and gas. And, uh, you know, I think the, the prospectors, the uh, geologists have a very bright future. So, you know, we, we face a very complicated world where um, generation by generation priorities change. And if there's one thing everybody wants, it's, um, um, a better life for the average person. And governments um, uh, are run by politicians. And by definition, a politician is somebody who bribes you with your own money.
and politicians are promising a better life. They're promising um, cleaner air. They're promising uh, better water. They're talking about arresting uh, climate change. They're talking about eliminating the burning of coal and hydrocarbon without any idea really of what this is actually going to take. Uh, Bill Gates, who is really doing a, a tremendous work uh, with his fund, uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, talks about two kinds of people that terrify him. The first type of person is the person who denies that this effort even needs to be undertaken. But the second type is the person who buys into the idea of greening the world economy, but has no idea whatsoever how difficult that's actually going to be. Because there's nothing easy about any of this. So uh, when you take a look at the scale of the hydrocarbon industry, and you talk about eliminating its role in transportation over, say, a generation. Let's say it takes 30 years to convert the entire fleet to electrical vehicles. There's 280 million cars in the United States. 279 million of them are running on gasoline or diesel today. Just in the United States, to get rid of the 279 million gas and diesel burning cars, and to replace them with electric cars, if you take out your old slide rule and back asswards calculate what that's going to require in the entire supply chain, it's mind-boggling. You know, we're building a copper mine in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's amazing how much copper we need to build that copper mine. Uh, tomorrow morning, we're sending out pictures of the mill you know, being built and their huge copper cables to electrify that mill. So if you want to electrify the world economy, uh, the electrically conductive elements are, are going to become much more valuable in real terms compared to things that don't conduct electrical energy. I mean, if you wanted to make a ton of money in the last 20 years, all you had to do was buy Apple computer. You had an iPhone in your hand, it was that obvious. Uh, a lot of people would touch their iPhone more often than they touch any other part of their body. So it wasn't that hard to figure out that Apple was a good buy. Now, when you go to electrify the whole world, and I, I'm not talking about cars, or not just cars, but skateboards, or hoverboards, or snowmobiles, or uh, skidoos, or drones, or airplanes, or buses, or trucks. As you electrify all that, it's all a huge fraud if you don't change the way the electrical energy is generated, distributed, and stored. So the whole system has to be rebuilt top to bottom, and that is what is bringing the, the onset of the revenge of the miners. Actually, Oil and gas is mining. You drill a hole in the ground looking for oil, and if you're successful in finding it, that hole is the mine. It starts pumping almost immediately. But hard rock mining is an order of magnitude more difficult. You have to drill thousands and thousands of holes, and nothing comes out of those holes. But maybe a five or 10 year permitting process, which is getting tougher and tougher. 
So this brings us to ESG, the environment, and, and the social aspects and the governance of this enterprise, which is radically different than it was in the 1920s. We now live in a world where everyone's handphone is a camera and a video camera, and hence is inherently um, immediately uploadable to every organization in the world. So you can see um, what happened to Pebble, for example, in Alaska. Fabulous copper mine, huge amount of gold. But you have to figure out a way to guarantee that it will have absolutely no impact on a downstream salmon fishery. And that this, this starts to create an inherent conundrum. Something that doesn't make sense. On the one hand, the world is screaming for copper to electrify the world economy. And uh, Tesla is utterly dependent on copper and nickel. It can't possibly have that market capitalization unless a lot of Tesla cars get built. And that copper and nickel has to come from somewhere. And so the countervailing, countervailing pressure to, to meet very high ESG standards in mining is going to make the whole enterprise even more interesting and difficult to do properly. So welcome to the new world. Uh, you know, the situation is hopeless, but it's not serious for the miners. Uh, it is possible to mine responsibly and in, in a better way. And we as an industry have to find a way to do that. And that, that applies to all aspects of the enterprise. Exploration, development, construction, tailings disposal, and, and, and reclamation. Uh, and so where we mine, how we mine, who's employed in mining is being revolutionized. It's not just going to be an enterprise for the old white guys from Canada. You know, when you go to the Toronto Club, you see all those pictures of the old dead guys on the wall, you know? It's not going to be like that anymore. There's going to be women in mining, and there's going to be people of every color, race, and description. And uh, mining is going to be required to help change this little planet that we're living on hurtling through space. I'd like to remind you that, you know, our Earth is spinning on its axis at over 1,200 miles an hour. And we're screaming through space around our star at about 66,000 kilometers an hour. We're on this little iron and silica ball with a nuclear power plant at its core creating heat. And the, 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 the layer of life on that ball is very thin and very fragile. It's very, very thin, the layer of life on our iron ball. It's very thin and it's very fragile. And we can't afford to take a chance with the environment that we inherited. For our children, our great-grandchildren, this is the only planet we've got at the moment. Now, at, at the Colorado School of Mines, they have a couple of popular bumper stickers. One is, um, stop mining, let the bastards freeze in the dark. And the other one is, uh, Earth first, we'll mine the other planets later. So we're, we're still in the phase of mining uh, on this planet. And uh, I'm sure that all the participants in this virtual roundup have access to all the world's knowledge on the internet. And we're all feeling our way through 
uh, a new way to revolutionize this industry for the next 20 or 30 years. So markets themselves are going to be revolutionized and, miter and they're going to be modernized. And they're going to be a lot smarter because they can uh, utilize the sum total of the advancement of technology. And so all of you are familiar that crude oil uh, has traded in various grades, WTI or Brent, heavy crude, light crude, sweet crude, sour crude. Crude oil was the number one traded commodity in the world for the last century. And it has different prices based on where it's physically located and how hard it is to make, uh, say, gasoline or diesel from that crude oil. So we all got used to the idea that there's really no one price for crude oil. Well, now uh, all commodities will have differential pricing. There will be no one price for copper. There will be no more one price for gold. Everything will be priced in relation to its ESG components. It'll be priced in relation to how much global warming gas is created in making that commodity because we're going to head to a price on carbon. I mean, the, the big fundamental revolution is that you know, whether it's methane or carbon dioxide, all, glo all global warming gases have some association with the element carbon. And the minute we put a price on carbon, every mine in the world will have its end product priced according to how deleterious it is or how less deleterious it is on the global environment. So if you're producing green copper with hydroelectric power and you're close to the end market, that will trade at a huge premium to an automaker who wants to put a sticker on the car of the downstream costs of making that car in terms of global warming gas. And if you're burning coal to make that copper, uh, then you're gonna, you know, that copper is gonna trade at a lower price because we talking to the German and Japanese automakers, they're very critically concerned with the entire supply chain in that electric car they're going to make for you. So it's not just how much global warming gas is produced per kilometer of driving that car, but how was that car built and how will that car be recycled and what will be the impact of that car cradle to grave, womb to tomb, or sperm to germ? You know, the whole cycle is being analyzed. In a circular economy, mining has to reinvent itself as being part of that circle. And that means differential pricing and smarter markets. And what's enabling those smarter markets is the blockchain. Uh, and you can make a smarter market in anything and that's gonna be very, very good for the electric metals. Smarter markets are going to, you know, guarantee that these metals continue to rise against the United States dollar. It's really the dollar that is failing against these metals. These metals are not going up in price. It's that the measuring stick, the paper currency, is going down against these metals. And so everything fluctuates in price against everything else. And we get so used to quoting the dollar price, like, hey buddy, how much does that cost? And somebody is talking to you in dollars. Well, 
actually the price of everything fluctuates against everything else. And so the, the revenge of the miners is dependent on these critical metals being more important than other things that are becoming less important. And so we're going to make renminbi markets or we're going to make euro dollar denominated markets in all these metals and they're all going to be audited right back down to the source of production. And the cleaner the supply chain, the more valuable the metals. There may be 30 grades of copper and 30 grades of nickel. Uh, or there may be um, markets made in carbon itself. If you have to pollute, you buy carbon credits. Uh, you know, Elon Musk is living on carbon credits. Tesla is at $725 a share because every car he sells is getting a government subsidy. People like the idea of electric cars. And they're just beginning to wake up that they need our metals to make those cars. And the markets are going to look different. So for exploration, if we look at the human body, in the old days when they had to you know, look in your body, they took a scalpel and cut you open. And it hurt, and then they had to sew it up with stitches. Now we can look in the earth with uh, remote sensing, satellite imagery, uh, and non-invasive geophysics. And geophysics is an order of magnitude better than it was five or 10 years ago. We can see copper, we can see gold, we can you know, create incredibly powerful electromagnetic fields. We have software that's very powerful. So we should be able to initiate the exploration with geochemistry and geophysics in a way that is less invasive, less, uh, less roads built for drilling. And we should, as the future comes forward to us, we should be able to drill just for confirmation of the discovery, but not to make the discovery. In the next five years, I, mean, I think, you know, our group at High Powered Exploration is there now. We, we actually find ore bodies non-invasively. We just drill to prove that they're there. You know, we, we eliminate 99.99% of the ground as being unmineralized and just focus on the part of the ground that is highly electrically conductive, even to great depth. So the mineral exploration process is um, going to involve a lot more machine learning, a lot more manipulation of terabits of data. There'll be a lot more data, data intensive industry. And in short, it's going to be a lot smarter. So at one end, you're going to have smarter exploration. And at the other end, you're going to have smarter markets. Uh, our group has been um, all over this planet for the last 35 years. Uh, and we can make a pretty honest count at having worked in 59 countries. Uh, and, you know, they're similar and different, those 59 places. And over this 35 years, our technology and our experience has improved. And now we're very excited about the United States. We think the United States is very underexplored. Uh, because, you know, American governments made it sort of toxic to be mining in the United States. The miners were the bad guys. But now even Joe Biden has said he will support the mining of copper in the United States because they know they need it. And there's a long list of metals the United States Department of Defense wants for America's national security. 
and they prefer that those metals be discovered in the United States. So, you know, we, we saw this coming and we've been taking a hard look at projects in those states in the United States where we think you can get a social license to mine, where it can be done properly and consciously. And there are places that don't have a positive water balance. You all know about Nevada, but Nevada is not the only state in the United States where mining is possible. And a lot of that terrain is amenable to disruptive exploration technology, which we have, have developed. We have Typhoon, which is a technology that enables us to separate the haystack from the needle. So that's the essential paradigm in metals exploration, is to separate the haystack from the needle. And the first thing we realized is that the haystack is not electrically conductive, and the needle is. So we have disruptive technology in geophysics, not only in the hardware system that improves the signal to noise ratio by generating very, very powerful electromagnetic pulses at the scale of a gigawatt, the output of a nuclear power plant, but also the receivers and the software uh, and the algorithms that enable us to interpret that geophysical information. And of course, that geophysical information has to be married with structural geology. All great ore bodies have some relationship to structure or geochemistry alter, or to alteration patterns. But you know, we're, we're like kids in a candy store in the United States. And we've been private and we've been doing this for a long time. And you know, we love what we're doing and we call ourselves high-powered exploration, not because our brains are high-powered, we're fairly normal people. But the geophysical equipment is high-powered. Every time it puts out a pulse at a gigawatt, you know, it's a huge amount of power involved. So utilizing a huge amount of electrical energy uh, to do the exploration is disruptive and utilizing the number crunching ability of supercomputers to interpret the geophysical information reduces the requirement to leave a big footprint on the ground in the exploration process. You know, uh, when you put electricity into rock, it doesn't really feel it. The rock is not a sentient being. And when that copper, that gold lights up at a kilometer or two deep and we see it, that's really exciting. You know, and to be able to validate that our geophysical information is real with a drill hole, as I've been telling everybody for years, is much better than sex. And, and I think uh, British Columbia has fantastic exploration potential. Up there in the Golden Triangle, uh, around Kamloops, uh, we've looked at some very interesting things. Uh, as long as we think we can make a friendly long-term alliance with the original Aboriginal owners of that land, yes, it's going to be possible to mine consciously in British Columbia. The Junior Mining Company was invented in Canada and perfected as a financial vehicle. And eventually it was sort of stolen for ganja or marijuana deals. But the idea of a venture capital market in Canada, um, the Canadians led the world in that. The Canadian spirit of uh, being able to conquer anything is so great, you know. 
Canadians have gone virtually everywhere on this planet and made it work. Um, you know, you're, you're going to be able to find more money in the next few years than you were able to in the past, and that's good for all of us because what junior mining companies are doing is very much like the companies that are looking for a new efficacious drug. You know, uh, Pfizer's partner, BioNTech, was like a junior little mining company. BioNTech's probably worth, I don't know, $50, $100 billion today? I'd have to look it up. But it's Pfizer's partner in that, in that job we're, we're in line to get. And Moderna was a little junior company. And Moderna is huge. Everybody's gonna get a Moderna jab. I mean, billions of people. And so the function of developing uh, an, an efficacious drug, an ethical drug, like Viagra or Cialis, you know? Uh, it's a junior company that develops it and then they sell it or joint venture with a larger company. And that's a time-honored tradition. And I think a lot of us that have a little more capital available are very anxious to talk to junior mining companies because after all, that's where all the ideas come from. Everything starts with something. So it's, a, it's the deepest honor to talk to the explorationists because in our world, the geologists are the gods. You know, in our world, that's where it all comes from, you know, and, and, and there's more wealth created in the discovery than sitting there tweaking those little dials for 40 years and actually mining it. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking to the automakers and I'm actually uh, speaking to the board of directors of a major German automaker. So we know they're thinking, you know. And in the electrification of the automobile, they are getting concerned about how you source the critical raw materials to build that car. But automakers assemble components primarily, which are made by a plethora of suppliers. They put them together and they call it a car. But you know, the steering wheel comes from one guy and the brakes comes from another guy and the wheels comes from a different factory. And the uh, car makers don't want to be miners. You know, because if your tillings dam fails, the environmental liability would kill the car maker. So what um, I think might happen would be a subject of another great Canadian invention, uh, Pierre Lassonde's invention, Seymour Schulich's invention, the streaming company, Randy Smallwood's invention, streaming, that uh, the end users may be prepared to stream metals to guarantee that they have the supply of the nickel or the cobalt or the copper or the vanadium or the scandium they need to build their cars. And that would provide uh, another competing source of capital to floating a junk bond or selling equity on the markets. And so if you make it easier to finance a mine at the back end, uh, then that trickles down to the explorationists. That that wealth trickles down to the explorations because the producing mining companies are in the process of eating themselves. It's like a, a snake swallowing its own tail as you mine your ore reserves. And so as they generate wealth actually mining, of course, a lot of that wealth will come down to the exploration community at the Cordilleran Roundup. So uh, I don't think you, you can actually dial up Elon and get him to write you a check because um, a lot of people that do that are gonna get their teeth and lips handed to them on a velvet cushion. 
it's not that easy to find a mine. And as we all know, not every mineral prospect goes into production. But in general, uh, the requirement for these metals to improve the world will definitely make access to capital more available for properly conducted mineral exploration in conjunction with Aboriginal peoples, if that was their historical lands, and under proper ESG guidelines, where the whole system is thought of much more carefully than the industry did in the past. So we think our own people could tell their own story about how different we are. You know, we have women doing the mining. Uh, we have women in management. We're taking local people that uh, are hired based on their eagerness to learn, based on their aptitude. And we're training them to do great work. And we're finding tremendous human potential in the Congo, tremendous human potential in South Africa, uh, tremendous human you know, potential everywhere we go. And, and so this gives us uh, a lot of joy, you know, to get it uh, to where it's self-sustaining. Uh, we're um, mining rock uh, and stockpiling it in preparation of our concentrator starting up at Kamoa. And just, uh, this is an unusual mine in that the development of the mine, the development rock that we're mining, actually is generating the capital to build the mine. And uh, God willing, we'll be in production uh, this summer, the way it's looking, ahead of schedule. And it's been a, quite an interesting voyage from uh, going there during the uh, Civil War in 1996, acquiring the land, being the first people to fly it with uh, Aeromag, and then doing the mapping and thinking differently about what was underneath the Aeolian sand, to the initial discovery, uh, then begging for the mining license and securing the mining license and cutting a deal with the government, a sustainable deal, and then hiring the local people, and then bringing in our friends from China, providing capital, and they are the world's biggest buyer of copper, by the way, as they electrify their giant economy. And putting all these pieces together under a Canadian-listed company has been great. And it, it's a very good model for smaller companies to follow because we're just acting like an icebreaker. And, you know, we're trying to find a better way to do things. And a lot of that comes from the spirit of the Cordilleran Roundup. It's really critical to realize that nothing is impossible. Nothing's easy either, but it can be done. It is being done and we're doing it. Ladies and gentlemen, um, this has been a very unusual year for the world. It started out really strange. Uh, I've been stuck uh, in Singapore for 10 months. I haven't stayed in one place for 10 months since I was in college 50 years ago. So I'm getting ready to get the jab and start traveling again. I've got people screaming at me to come meet them physically all over the world. Uh, a year from now, when we have the next roundup, I'm hoping we see a, 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 a vibrant, recovering world economy. And I think we'll see higher metals prices right across the board. You see that the precious metals are rising against the dollar. Uh, and base metals are rising against the dollar. And even, the, even iron ore, which is probably the lowest IQ of the metals, 
has outperformed gold. It's a fantastic run. So all of these metals are in enormous demand as governments print money to engage in deficit spending to stimulate their economies in response to this pandemic. So the, an end is in sight. We're closer to the end of this pandemic than the beginning. And we all need to get back to work, rolling up our sleeves and build a better world. And I think when we look back at this period in our life, it'll be a period where people had a period of introspection and we learned how to do things different. We learned how to have a virtual conference for the Cordillo and Roundup. We learned how to do road shows uh, with Zoom calls. And it's not all bad, you know, because I didn't like flying on air airplanes and going up and down elevators, talking to kids half my age, begging them to give me some money to do something. It's easier to do it on a Zoom call and stay at home, you know, in your shorts and t-shirt, which I've been doing. So um, a year from now, I think we're gonna have a better world. We'll probably have higher metals prices and the demand of people coming to the Cordillera and Roundup will probably be like the good old days, when it'll be like trying to get the contents of the Hoover Dam through a garden hose. So this is uh, Robert Friedland of uh, Ivanhoe Mines from Singapore. Um, wishing you adios and all the best. Lots of music in this episode. I don't know. It's a little distracting at times, but it does sort of keep the flow too. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. It's always interesting listening to Robert Friedland. And uh, like I was saying earlier, he seemed to have a few newer things to say. So he is constantly updating his view of the mining industry, elder statesman, among many. With that, if you'd like to support the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, send it to your friends. And until next week... Take care.